welcome to 2021. And welcome back to those of you who've been traveling the road to Shalom for a season or two. You know, if you're new to the podcast, thanks for listening. I'm Fran Shaka, the host of The Road to Shalom. It's an exploration into what the mutual flourishing between all things might look like, what the ancient Near Eastern peoples called Shalom, a world in which every relationship, the relationship of people and God, people and people, people and nature, and even nature with itself, and even our inner relationships with ourselves, all of them enrich and do not diminish us. You know, in the Judeo-Christian tradition, this beautiful arrangement, God's design from the very beginning, was vandalized by humanity, and it's going to be restored in the life to come. This show examines a little bit how we contribute to the loss of Shalom and what it might take for it to be restored, at least substantially in this life. Before we jump into this episode, I wanted to give a shout out to you guys to the for the podcast as it steps into its third season. Just this week, we passed the marker for 20,000 listens. So thank you. And as an old guy who's pretty much a Padawan learner in the podcasting universe, I've been told by the folks that are kind of the Jedi masters of podcasting that I'm supposed to encourage you to write a review of the podcast, The Road to Shalom, on wherever you get your podcast. So Take a few minutes after this episode and jot a few lines about what it's meant to you and why. Okay? All right. I don't think I've mentioned before, uh, at least I don't think I did, that I was a high school teacher for nearly 25 years before I started Hands of Her, the ministry I direct, of which this podcast is kind of an expression. But I was. I taught Bible in Colorado Springs and Birmingham, Alabama, pretty much splitting that 25-year period between two schools in each of those cities. You know, and when I was doing that, I did everything in my power to make my classroom a place students look forward to coming, knowing full well that's a pretty idealistic goal for 15 to 18-year-olds. But you know what? I'm passionate about learning and have been deeply influenced by the fact that the Hebrew verb for learn and the verb for teach is the same word. In fact, that verb, lamad, to teach, actually means to cause someone to learn, all right? Anyway, I was committed to my classroom becoming an environment where you'd have to consciously not want to learn in order for that to happen. And one of the things I did was hang quotations all over the walls and the ceiling so that even if someone was daydreaming, they'd have the opportunity to learn something. I mean, one quote was from Apple evangelist Guy Kawasaki's 1991 book, Selling the Dream, and that quote said, all men are cremated equal. You know, in all, I suppose there are about 25 of these quotes scattered all over the room on the ceiling, the walls. And one day after everyone else had followed the sound of the bell to their next class, one of my students stayed behind and she was, you know, she was visibly confused, uh, but she was really hesitant to speak for some reason. So I finally broke the silence and said, Brooke, what's, what's on your mind? And she said, Mr. Shaka, you know that sign on the wall today that says there are no atheists in hell? Well, I'm just so confused. And I, I asked her what her confusion was, and she said, well, well, then where are they? Now, trust me, <laughs> this is one of those rare moments for a teacher when you've got to decide how to respond. You know, laughter seemed the most reasonable response, but probably not the most professional. So I just said slowly, well, Brooke, maybe, maybe there's another way to look at that statement. Maybe it's not talking about where the person is. That's a cute anecdote for sure. But, you know, it's also a bit of a metaphor 
for the myopia that seems to have characterized a large and perhaps growing sector of American evangelicalism. If you're thinking in one direction, you can't think of anything else unless you change your gaze. And that's not easy to do if everyone around you is looking in the same direction too, if you know what I mean. So unless someone else changes your gaze for you. You know, about 30 years ago, I wrote a book called Generation at Risk, What Legacy Are Baby Boomers Leaving Their Kids? And in, in that book, I made a pretty bold statement giving my assessment of the state of evangelicalism in the late 80s. And here's what I said 30 years ago. The evangelical church in America has become a moral mirror image of the larger culture. We've created the illusion of separateness by developing a religious subculture complete with its own industries. But under inspection, it becomes clear that we are as self-indulging as the larger culture and nearly as autonomous. You know, the person who wrote a review of that book in Christianity Today accused me of being heavy-handed. That's, that's what he said, and I was unfairly critical. I'll leave the equity of that judgment to you, but I happen to believe that the perennial struggle of the faith community has to do with perspective, has to do with the direction we're looking, the direction of our gaze. I mean, where, where do we look for our sense of identity, of, of who we are? I mean, what's our point as a people? What's the purpose of the church? And what should we be doing with our time, our money, and our resources? Or in other words, what's our calling or what's our mission? 30 years ago, when I wrote that book, the evangelicalism that I saw was becoming more and more content, simply having its own music, its own version of the Grammys, its own elementary and high schools, its own magazines and publishing companies, having its own line of merchandise, its own TV and radio stations, and its own growing cult of celebrities. We pretty much had our own little world going on, all right? And the decade of the 80s bred a particular version of Christian narcissism that was evidenced by the 500 Christian books in print then whose titles contain the words how-to, as well as the geometric rise in Christian counseling that started in that decade with this focus on inner healing and finding yourself in order to give yourself and telling yourself the truth and so on. And then the decade of the 90s marked the coming out, I guess you could call it, of Christian activism, orbiting around books and speakers referring to what they called the culture wars. And Colorado Springs, where I was living, became something of a hotbed for all this when James Dobson moved his organization, Focus on the Family, there in 1991. And, and to be honest, I have to say that I've had difficulties for the past 30 years with the whole concept of culture wars. Not because, now listen to me, not because the word isn't descriptively accurate. It is accurate. But the concept of culture wars, as it is popularly propagated and understood, is typically anemic in at least two ways. One is that it belies or at least minimizes the reality that the entire message of the Bible from cover to cover is that the God's covenant community will always be misunderstood, underrepresented, and constantly threatened by distraction and misdirection from its mission. I mean, there's a scarlet thread running through the biblical narrative, and it's one of warfare. you got death, desertion, betrayal, fear, and hopelessness are evident in even the best of the characters in the story of God. But so are courage, perseverance, mercy, and compassion, 
not to mention justice and fealty to the king. Are we at war with the culture? Well, yeah, sort of, but the biblical narrative casts the struggle on a much bigger battlefield and portrays the warfare being as old as the Garden of Eden. And also, and perhaps even most importantly, the biblical narrative casts the struggle as one that is spiritual, not cultural, spiritual in nature and in power. We're told specifically that we are not contending against people, but against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. And finally, and maybe of greatest relevance to us today, the story of the Bible repeatedly records the spiritual collapse of God's people when they lose sight of the true nature of the battle and slowly give more and more of their allegiance to political power and material resources while simultaneously giving less and less time attending to the soul of the covenant community. I mean, this is evident in Jewish kings making alliances with other nations in the Old Testament, all the way up to the Sanhedrin trying to keep Rome happy in order to preserve their way of life during the days of Jesus. Okay, so what's any of this got to do with us during our present hour? Well, it's my belief that the cultural and spiritual myopia that I saw within evangelicalism 30 years ago has not only continued, but it's been accelerating because of the gradual removal of the anchors that were holding it back. What do I mean? Well, I'm glad you asked that question because that brings us to the title of this episode, Is God Weaning His People? Beloved, I can't speak to cultural myopia except to say that for those of us in the faith community, the short-sighted, narrow-minded tunnel vision that characterizes growing numbers of people in general is the inevitable stepchild of a more serious perception problem, all right? Something I can only call for us voluntary spiritual atrophy. I realize that's a little harsh. You might even call it heavy-handed. That would be fair, I suppose, except I'm not a heavy-handed person. I'm just a guy who's been trying to say the same thing to the same people for four decades in one fashion or another. I think the reason we've been drawn into the destructive din of our day has more to do with what we don't know than what we do know. The late Richard Niebuhr said this. He said, The great Christian revolutions come not by the discovery of something that was not known before. They happen when somebody takes radically something that was already there. In other words, the great Christian revolutions come when somebody takes radically something that was already there. Niebuhr is talking here, beloved, about forgotten truth, forgotten truth, about rediscovering it and then radically embracing it and aligning myself with all its implications and consequences. I think this is the clear and present challenge to American evangelicalism. Now, I want you to hang on to that thought of Niebuhr's because I want to piggyback on it a verse from the letter to the Hebrews and then spend the time we have left kind of weaving the two together. And here's the verse from the letter to the Hebrews. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. 
But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Now hang with me because we're going to put this passage kind of on the operating table a bit and try to open it up. The author of Hebrews is addressing a group of Jewish people who had embraced Jesus as the promised Messiah here. All right, The verbs and the nouns are all plural, so we know he's not talking just to a, a person. And he sort of gets in their faces a bit with the word that in our Bible says you ought to. By this time, you ought. It's a pretty tough word, really, pointing to obligation. It's not a suggestion. I mean, this is what you should be doing. Instead, you're not, all right? They were being delinquent in their responsibility. Why? Well, he says that, quote, by this time, or put another way, Hey, come on, folks, you've been at this a while. You're the ones who are supposed to be helping others know what you know. That's kind of what he's saying here. Then he goes on to tell them that spiritually, they're, they're, they're basically children, little, little children, in fact, who need to be fed spiritual milk, the food of infants. He makes it pretty clear that whatever they had known either was gone or at least needed a refresher course. They were in need of being, according to the writer, taught again the basic principles of God's word. Or put in modern idiom, you need to learn your ABCs all over again. That's kind of what the Greek phrase means. And he then makes an interesting statement about them. He says, you are unskilled in the word of righteousness. And beloved, that word unskilled means inexperienced. Their spiritual immaturity in regard to God's word, the things God had said, had rendered them skill-less in its use on one hand, and stunted their own spiritual development on the other. Beloved, I'm, I'm afraid this description fits many of us within the modern evangelical camp. We've, we've lost our spiritual perception of the world and the true nature of the battle we're surrounded by because we've forgotten or perhaps maybe never even knew the larger spiritual framework in which our lives are being lived. We've slowly become blind to the spiritual purpose for which we've been called. That's the atrophy that's infected us. We've become ignorant of what St. Paul calls God's plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in heaven and on earth in Christ. If you've been on this podcast for a while, you've heard me say that phrase over and over. And Paul says that in the first chapter of Ephesians, that God has this plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in heaven and things on earth in Christ. And then in the very next chapter of Ephesians, Paul further unpacks what that unity, to unite all things in heaven, on earth, and Christ, he, he unpacks what that unity actually looks like in just one corner of life, that the world of racial hostility. And he uses the Greek equivalent of our Hebrew word shalom to do so. Here's what Paul says, But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace, our shalom who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he, listen to this, he might create in himself one new humanity, one new man in place of the two, so making peace, making shalom, and might reconcile us both to God in the same, the one same body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility, killing the hostility. What am I getting at? Here, beloved, simply that God's story, the Bible, is the clear narrative 
that exegetes, that unpacks, that explains his purposes. If we want to know what God wants for us and from us, beloved, we got to know this narrative. We got to know the biblical story. And I'm not talking here about general Bible knowledge, all right? Stuff you can get from talking vegetables, books of the Bible, basic geography, or even mastering the classic Bible stories about Noah, Joseph, Moses, fall of Jericho, David and Goliath, Esther, and, and the others, you know, or even the nativity, the crucifixion, Pentecost, and the journeys of Paul. Should you and I know those stories? Well, yeah, but every one of them is a component piece in the one story of the one God that's contained between the two covers of our Bible. To be honest, I have to tell you that not knowing the one story means that you and I really don't know the meaning of the pieces either. You ponder that, beloved. That's a strong statement, but I think it's true. A person who doesn't know the one story of the one God is actually one of the infants in need of milk that the writer of Hebrews was addressing. And I fear that much of American evangelicalism over the past 40 years has become a large nursery full of infants in need of milk. And as a result, collectively, we often resemble a cast of characters in search of a plot. And as our trail leading to a plot seems to have gone cold, many have decided to settle for an agenda instead of a plot. Whose agenda? Well, that all depends pretty much on where you live and who your friends are. Okay, this is an issue of voluntary spiritual apathy, and it's a, a big deal to me because it's produced a spiritual blindness of sorts. And I've dedicated the last 15 years of my life trying to raise the level of biblical literacy among the faith community because of the dire consequences if we miss our purpose because we've lost the story. You know, Isa sold his birthright for a can of soup because of spiritual short-sightedness. And what happens on the individual level can happen corporately as well. The Hebrew scriptures themselves were lost during the days just before King Josiah because of spiritual short-sightedness. And the prophet Amos, beloved, one of the final two voices from God before the total fall of the northern kingdom of Israel, issued a chilling warning to God's people in the 8th century BC that's incredibly sobering for this current moment in our own spiritual history. I mean, it, 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 it has stuck with me. It's practically tattooed on my cerebral cortex. Amos said this, speaking for God, by the way, the days are coming, declares the sovereign Lord, when I will send a famine through the land, not a famine of food or a thirst for water, but a famine of hearing the words of Yahweh, the words of the Lord. And then nearly 800 years later, St. Paul made a similar prediction. Paul said this, For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions, and they will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Beloved, the word wander here is a Greek word that points to kind of slowly being misled. The verb is passive. It's something happening to these people. And Paul says that they're misled into myths. The Greek word mutas here refers to a fable or a story. In other words, Paul is saying that there is a day when people will find themselves embracing a different story, a different plot, but one that is more tailored to what they want out of life 
than one that is rooted in God's plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in heaven and things on earth in Christ. And more seriously is Paul's statement that they will eventually turn away from paying attention to the truth, to the one story of the one God. Beloved, that's what a famine of hearing the words of the Lord looks like. And I have to say that I really think being a cast of characters in search of a plot is bad, but being a cast of characters who've embraced the wrong plot, well, that's, that's just much worse. And so as we step into the uncharted waters of 2021, I'd like to issue a challenge to you. I want you to do a little self-assessment here, a little self-audit, all right? Where would you put yourself on the kind of the spiritual growth chart? Are you, are you still nursing? Are you still an infant? Are you still living on milk? Or are you maturing and growing in your understanding of just what it is that God's seeking to do in this hour that we find ourselves? Is your understanding of what it means to follow Jesus rooted in the one story of the one God or the current storyline of much of evangelicalism of our day. Do you feel like you know the story of God and you really know it? I mean, how much of your day or week is spent in it? I mean, can you think of the last time or when, when was the last time you actually sat down, held a Bible in your hands and read it for yourself? You know, I, I would like for you to consider making January, 2021, the time you decided you wanted to know better the one story of the one God, the story that you're actually in as a believer. Now, this, let me give you a couple ideas. There's, there's tons of doable reading programs online you can print out and stick in the flap of your Bible. Find one that's chronological not and follows the storyline rather than the table of contents, okay? All right. And listen to me. Listen to me. Put on your, put on your big boy pants here. I'm going to say something. Uh, don't be put off. I want you to use a Bible that isn't on a screen. I want you to use a physical Bible, one you can hold in your hands, one you can mark up, one you can stare off and think, one you can leave to someone else when you die, one that has something of your journey in it, dates and initials and things like that. Okay. Now, if you decide you want to do less, all right, let me suggest get a copy of Sandra Richter's book, The Epic of Eden. The Epic of Eden. It's a great way to get your mind around the narrative of the Bible. The one story of the one God. That's what the Bible is. She's a brilliant scholar and she's a great writer. And if you want to do a little bit more, uh, I've made the three biblical literacy courses that I use in training. I've made them available online and they each have a course book full of great content. They're chronological in approach and are based off the, that one that notion of the one story of the one God. And there's also 13 hours of free audio with each of them. You can find them at my website, franchaka.com, uh, under the print menu. I've actually um, put a link to all three of these suggestions at the end of this podcast, and you can look at the transcript uh, to find that if, you, if you'd like to know the links to that. All right. Now, beloved, I know this episode stepped on some of your toes a bit. But there's so much more at stake here than stimulus checks and arguments over wearing masks and getting vaccinated. We're, we're talking about the future of the gospel and the mission of God to restore shalom in all the places it's been stolen. Shalom between us and him for sure, for sure. Shalom between us and each other. 
And those two places obviously are just starters. But until and unless we really believe that the one story of the one God is the story we are in, we will be perfect prey for agendas and myths. Or put another way, we will find ourselves in the storyline and plot of a different story. Beloved, the road to shalom is in the story. The road to disunity and distraction is in the world of agendas and myths. What's it going to be for you in 2021? See you next time.